New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Many of us say we are overloaded with a sense of pride. Our guest today says being overloaded should be a sign that you have a problem, not a source of pride. Dr. Devin Price has studied the behaviors that get labeled as laziness and gives us practical advice about how to draw better boundaries in all areas of our life where we might run the risk of overcommitting. Price's premise is for people to get comfortable with being less productive than society tells us. Price says, we must take care of ourselves in holistic ways, which means accepting that we might never be as prolific as we once were and coming to see that this is a good thing. Join us as we explore the social dilemma of spreading ourselves much too thin with our guest, Dr. Devin Price. Devin Price is a social psychologist, writer, activist, and an assistant clinical professor of applied psychology and data science at Loyola University Chicago's School of Continuing and Professional Studies. They are the author of Laziness Does Not Exist. Join us for the next hour as we explore the laziness lie with our guest, Dr. Devin Price. I'm speaking with Dr. Price in their home by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Welcome, Devin. Thanks for having me, Justine. Thank you for, for being here and participating with us the title of your book is very provocative. Can you share with us what indicates that laziness does not exist? Can you help help us understand? Sure. Yeah. Um, so when I say that laziness uh, does not exist, I want to to clarify that I mean laziness in the way that we most commonly use it, which is to have some kind of condemnation aspect to it. So um, the more kind of benign use of the word, like lazy Sunday, to just kind of mean languid or not having motivation. Um, I, that's, that's fine. If people want to use that, uh, that we can certainly say that exists, but the idea that when someone fails to do something, it's because of some kind of failure inside of them. That's really the thing that I'm taking issue with. Um, and if we really kind of dive down and think 
about it more deeply, it doesn't really make sense to think of someone lacking motivation or lacking focus or drive as being something that anyone would ever choose to do, right? Either you don't do something because you haven't been convinced that there's any value in it, in which case lacking motivation is pretty rational from wherever you're sitting, right? I might disagree with somebody else's priorities, but if they don't care about doing something that doesn't matter to them, that's pretty rational. So we can't really call that laziness. And then uh, if someone fails to do something that they do care about, um, clearly they're not choosing to fail. Nobody wants to be a disappointment. Nobody wants to um, not meet the benchmarks that they're setting for themselves. So then the question really becomes, why isn't the person able to meet these goals? And if you look at that, it often comes down to all kinds of things like depression, anxiety, trauma, uh, structural problems that are getting in their way, racism, transphobia, sexism, often a variety of different issues that the person's dealing with. Uh, and so then if, if someone's not meeting a certain benchmark, that's not because they're lazy. It's because they're actually doing a lot. They're fighting very valiantly in the face of a ton of barriers, and they're just being asked to do far too much. I think I remember in your book, you go into a wonderful description of how difficult it is to be homeless. Mm. Like we look at the unhoused uh, as many of them, uh, we look at them as being lazy and that's why they're on the street. Uh, I, can you address that, please? Yeah, absolutely. So I think when we talk about uh, politicizing and moralizing laziness, there's no more stark example of that um, and how that is used as a tool to kind of exploit people. Uh, than uh, homelessness and hatred of people who are homeless. So um, we, most of us from a very young age, get indoctrinated to not give money to people who are homeless or to blame uh, people in that situation for their own misfortune. Don't give them any money. They're just going to spend it on drugs. They didn't, they're not applying to enough jobs. All of this kind of scrutinizing and saying that they're not doing enough. And at the same time, we use the fear of homelessness as part of our kind of mythology of workaholism, that you have to work really hard, you have to be self-made, and if you don't try hard enough and work hard enough, you could end up like one of these people. And what that kind of ideology ignores, obviously, is the huge structural problems that create homelessness. We have so many houses and, and other uh, public spaces just sitting empty, especially right now, uh, that people don't have access to while people are, are in overstuffed shelters or sleeping on the street. And also, it's um, an incredible lot of work to be homeless. Um, so even something like uh, sleeping on the cold, hard ground every night. If you have to do that and you have no choice but to do that, to me, it makes sense that someone in that situation might spend some of the money that they get on drugs or alcohol to be able to just numb some of that pain, to just even be able to get to sleep. Um, and that might not be a quote unquote ideal decision, uh, but who among us is making ideal decisions all the time, especially right now? Yeah, that, that's that's well said. And and so let's just talk, please help us to know what you mean by the laziness lie. I mean, you, you alluded to that earlier. And just, just to be real clear, what is the laziness lie? 
Yeah. So in the book, uh, I use the term the laziness lie to kind of speak about the system of cultural beliefs that uh, tell us that your productivity is your worth. Uh, there's always more that you could be doing and that you can't trust your own needs and limitations, that you have to kind of view your own feelings of exhaustion, for example, as kind of suspect and something you need to kind of argue with and negotiate away. Um, and we get these messages. Nobody sits down and necessarily tells us these messages for the most part, but we get them in media uh, where the hero of every story is a strong individual who does everything on his own. And it is usually a he. Uh, we get it in uh, the, the Protestant work ethic and the idea that work is a moral act and that not doing something is sloth and is immoral for some reason, even though it doesn't harm anyone to just do nothing. Uh, it's one of the most value neutral things in the world doing nothing, or it should be. Um, and it's also really ingrained in how uh, we're taught to kind of rationalize systems that are racist and sexist and oppressive in all these different ways. Um, really drilling in that kind of pull yourself up, up by your bootstraps logic uh, that was used to justify slavery. It was used to justify keeping the working class kind of separated and at each other's throats and not giving people things like welfare and disability benefits. Um, and so uh, it's really deep-seated stuff. And even if we consciously don't want to agree with it, I think almost all of us have that internalized and kind of running beneath the surface and, and believe it on some gut level um, that we're not working hard enough and that uh, when we feel tired or are at a limit that there's something wrong with us for that. I'm, I'm just thinking when you talk about welfare benefits, just in we're speaking with one another in the mid-fall of 2020. It's um, December 2020. And um I saw something, uh, a news report about the backlash of giving people that extra money, that extra $600 or whatever it was on those checks that we all got uh, earlier in the spring and, and what it did for our economy. I mean, everybody spent that money and they, they infused the economy. And, and I saw the report that the U.S. actually was doing better on the economy than other nations, even though our, our rate of, of illness in the uh, COVID-19 is higher because of that. And now they're arguing about like, oh, well, we don't want to give money away to people. They'll just be lazy and they won't work and won't, you know. So it's right here in our face, even though we see here's the something that is saying this really was helpful to our overall society and culture. And yet that other thing, that laziness lie, just is pervasive. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing that's really noteworthy about the U.S. compared to other countries, um, though the U.K. has a, kind of runs a similar track, the way we just began cutting social welfare beginning in the 80s. I mean, it was starting to already begin before then, but just around Reagan and Thatcher's kind of era. Uh, it became very, very uh, morally taboo to require any kind of government assistance. Things like welfare uh, were considered pretty morally neutral uh, in the kind of post-war era in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, because it was just kind of associated with um, white women who had been widowed and needed that assistance to take care of their kids. But then uh, you get to the 80s, and uh, a lot of 
people who wanted to cut funding for those kinds of services made it about this very demonized image, often a very racialized image of like the welfare queen, right? Or people who are depicted in these really ghoulish ways as untrustworthy, as exploiting the system. And therefore we need to have really, really harsh rules about who deserves to get benefits and we need to provide them as little as possible. Um, And we also see that in disability benefits in this country and the UK and some other countries as well, where if you have a disability, you have to prove that you really are suffering, quote unquote, enough, or you're impaired enough. Uh, sometimes every year you have to re-up and, and submit yourself to doctor's appointments and verification that you actually need the help. It's so funny that that's also linked to the economic logic that we need to give all of the liquid assets to people at the top. And that supposedly that'll trickle down. Because like you said, when people who are in need have money, they spend it. Uh, And that's not a sign that they're lazy or irresponsible. That's a sign of just how badly they need it. They're spending it on rent and food. And um, one of the most amazing things is how much more charitable poorer people are too. So some of my friends who are struggling the most, when they get donations, uh, they tithe it to their other friends who are also struggling. So to call these people, you know, selfish or taking advantage of the system, just, it just couldn't be farther from the truth. Going back a a bit to what you were referring to earlier about TV and movies, and there was one that you mentioned in your book. I have not seen this movie, but it was very interesting to me. It was Avengers Endgame, and apparently this superhero, Thor, uh, is... um, Uh, Well, you describe it. You can describe it better than I can. Sure. Yeah. So in that Avengers uh, movie, there's prior movies, spoiler, mild spoiler alert, a lot of characters die. And so Thor is kind of like in a state of grief. And the way that the movie depicts that is they kind of make him like a comedic figure, um, fat Thor, quote unquote. So they make him an alcoholic, they make him depressed, and they want to show that he's washed up uh, and make that kind of a subject of mockery. So one of the ways that they do that is by putting the actor in a fat suit. And that is um, just one of those illustrations of all of these judgments that we have kind of all put together. So judging alcoholics, judging uh, fat people, etc. Depressed people. Exactly. I'm here with Dr. Devin Price, the author of Laziness Does Not Exist. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Dr. Devin Price, and they are the author of Laziness Does Not Exist. And if you want to know more about the work of Dr. Price, you can go to the website devinprice.medium.com. 
www.newdimensions.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. So, Devin, uh, we were just talking about movies that like depicted, we were talking about Thor, and he was a fat, alcoholic, depressed. And um, so here we are. Uh, we're, we're talking about a few ways that we actually tag people as like procrastinators are, are a big one, procrastinators. And you also talk about cyber loafing. Uh, so let's talk about procrastinators, cyber loafing, and work home interference. So kind of pairing those three things together. Sure. Yeah. So um, procrastination is one of those actions or, or lack of actions that gets labeled as lazy a lot. A lot of people who procrastinate, for example, I have a lot of students who, you know, they might procrastinate on papers and they have it really drilled into them. They feel a lot of shame about it. Oh, I'm so lazy. This is all my fault. And when we look at the science of procrastination, it almost always happens because a person is very anxious about not doing a good enough job um, or they're not sure exactly how to start a really big task. So they haven't quite figured out how to chunk it up into little small discrete steps. And those two things are really at the heart of uh, task avoidance, as we sometimes call it in the literature, uh, or procrastination. And so those are things that you just accommodate and help um, by not uh, feeding into a culture of perfectionism and just uh, giving people the roadmap for how to start something like a big daunting research paper instead of just throwing it all in their lap. Um, and I think uh, that anxiety um, and uh, that tendency to kind of um, just put judgment on people's normal habits, we do also see that in um, their norm normal habits and kind of uh, adaptations to stress. We also see in kind of the literature on cyber loafing and work-life interference. So, so cyber loafing is um, when employees kind of quote unquote, waste time at work by online shopping, opening up Facebook, scrolling through Instagram, whatever it is. Um, and in the um, organizational psychology literature, they almost always start from a place of assuming it is time theft and that it's a bad thing. And uh, there's decades worth of studies about how to stop uh, people from goofing off online. And what we find pretty consistently once we stop approaching it from that angle and instead look at it in a more descriptive observational way is what is we see that people need that time to kind of switch gears from one task to another. People are most likely to cyber loaf when they've just completed doing a really focused intensive task and now they need to switch to something else. It's a little way of like coming up for air after you've been in the depths of the Excel spreadsheet or whatever it is. Um, so it's another one of those things people are made to feel uh, guilty about or employees are punished for engaging in when really, um, just like with procrastination, you kind of need to just build systems into place that take into account that people need their tasks divided up into little discrete, you know, 20 minute chunks, and then people need breaks. And we can accept these things and work with them instead of trying to punish them or shame them out of people. Okay, many of us are are working from home these days. And so we're working virtually. And and that is true also from working with home. I know for myself, I, I'll I'll do some writing task and then I'll I will go to those Facebook uh, 
little items that have been sent to me by email. Oh, this person just posted this or this, and I'll look that up. Or uh, or I'll go shopping online, <laughs> you know, whatever it is, you know, I uh, I'll I'll do something else. But that reminds me of the eight hour day, eight hour work day, um, which you describe is actually becoming much longer than that now. Uh, so let's talk about an eight hour day of asking for our undivided attention for eight hours. So what, what can you say about that as, as someone who's been researching all of this? Yeah, it's, uh, it's not sustainable to focus for eight hours a day. Time and time again, again, productivity research uh, dating back decades finds that on average, a person, um, an employee, you, you get, quote unquote, maybe three, maybe four hours and four is kind of pushing it of producing a lot of productivity um, per day. Beyond that, people can fake productivity if they're forced to, which is what we do in a lot of offices. And now working from home, a lot of people are kind of forced to do uh, by, you know, sitting at your desk or remaining active online. And, you know, since uh, since lockdown has happened from the pandemic, some employers are even monitoring employees' computers with screen uh sharing technology that takes random screenshots yeah at random intervals throughout the day or even tracks what a person's keyboard and mouse is doing to kind of punish you if you're not constantly active um it's it's really kind of uh apocalyptic that some employers are doing that but it's all rooted in this idea that um that people are supposed to be constantly generating 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 even though we know the research shows that's just not how our brains are built. We need time to kind of reflect on stuff and sit and calm down and chat at the water cooler or, or you know, get on Facebook. Yeah, that's that that's uh, shocking. But more and more people are working in the gig economy. And first of all, I want you to describe what the gig economy is. But uh, as as you do, it's it's like more corporations are just kind of bowing out of having to pay big benefits like health care or retirement or whatever it is. They're, they're, they're avoiding all of that by having these um, contractors or part-time workers. So that, that has its own uh, problems as far as having to stay on, on track as a, as a contractor as a gig person, uh, what can you say about that as in the context of laziness? Yeah. Um, so, so just as you said, a lot of corporations have realized that if they move their workforce completely over from W-2s to 1099s, make everyone a contract employee or technically not even an employee, uh, they don't have to give them benefits. It's way cheaper. And also it creates a very competitive environment. So the gig economy is Basically, any uh, kind of work where you hire someone short term through an app. So Uber, um, any kind of like Grubhub, food delivery, WAG, which is where you just kind of open up your phone app and uh, order a dog walk for your for your dogs. Uh, there's uh, there's one uh, there's ones for movers, all kinds of different things. And historically, those kinds of jobs, there would be a company that would hire you um, or you would have some kind of uh, union or uh, network that would help you. Uh, kind of weather the storm. You weren't expected to work every single hour that you were on the clock in terms of constantly churning out uh, revenue. There was some, because you had a salary, there was some ability for feast and famine to kind of 
you know, you'd have bad days and good days and it wouldn't affect you. Now, uh, under the gig economy, if you want to make money, you're only going to make money while you are actively driving that car, walking a dog, um, renting out your apartment, whatever it is, um, for whatever service it is. So this really feeds into the laziness lie um, in two ways. One, by making that really harsh competition where you just constantly have to be working. And the second way is it gives you this option of another way that you can be spending your free time. So even if you do have a part-time job or a full-time job, hey, in the evening, you could drive for Uber and make even more money. Hey, you could be walking dogs. And like that could be your exercise is something you get paid to do is walking these dogs off this app. And so it has also created this cultural pressure that every waking moment of your life, you could be spending making money or doing some side hustle, um, which just really erodes people's quality of life. Or, or, or you're looking for your, your next contract because the contracts can oftentimes be limited. And so you, you work really well with that, but you know that it's going to end. So you're constantly having to scan for your next gig, so to speak. I mean, this, this can even be for uh, programmers and, and, and writers and editors and all sorts of people. Uh, so this is, this is a big one, I, I think, as, as we move into more and more into a gig economy. I would like to also shift a little bit here and, and talk about relationships, because I know you talk in the book about relationships and how we can get sucked into um, those relationships that really are not serving us, that are not not giving us um, the best kind of, um, well, they leave us exhausted, so to speak. And so um, you use a great example of one in your life. Uh, you call him Ethan. And just describe that relationship and what you discovered. Yeah. So um, I wasn't I started out the book talking about having been a major workaholic. I certainly still have that problem, but I'm working on it. And and that workaholism extended into activism. It extended into always being a shoulder for people to cry on. It just I just didn't have an ability to set limits in general. Um, and I uh, I had a friend who I met online who was at first we we just talked about like TV together and it was kind of amicable even keeled friendship. But as we got closer, he um, started to really emotionally rely on me and um, and I wasn't setting clear enough limits of how much of that weight I could could you know take on um, because at that point in my life I was just not setting limits in that way and so. He ended up moving to the same town as me to take on and take a job. He hated the job. And so soon it just ballooned out and he was sending me messages every night about how depressed he was and how he had no hope. And sometimes talking about suicide ideation, um, sometimes for hours. And I felt this responsibility that, oh, I need to be here so this person doesn't hurt himself. I need to, I need to help him be okay. And what I ended up realizing far too late, um, you know, I should have, I wish I had realized this sooner because it would have been better for both of us. I was providing kind of a crutch that kept him from seeking out therapy or 
thinking about what he needed to do about this job that he hated. I had kind of uh, never said, this is too much for me to handle. You can, you know, I was always there to kind of reply to his frantic, upset, depressed messages, which just reinforced him seeing me as the person to go to for all of that. Um, So I came to resent this person that I was really good friends with, who was a great person who just didn't have good boundaries in this area and needed, needed to seek out professional help, not my help as his friend to do that. Um, and so once, so it got to the point where our relationship was too eroded by this. And I had to really just say, I can't, I can't talk to you anymore. This has been really traumatic for me. Um, but I, I did find out after I did that, that shortly after I stopped talking to him, he did start seeing a therapist. He joined a code coding boot camp to kind of at least put him on the path towards a job that he would hopefully hate a little bit less. And, um, basically I just had to take care of my own limits and in so doing, helped him kind of realize, okay, I need to get my needs met in a more appropriate way. That's a great, great uh, analogy there. He actually did better once you kind of removed yourself. I I have a story about that too. Uh, But I want to remind our listeners, I'm here with Dr. Devin Price, and they are the author of Laziness Does Not Exist. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Devin Price, author of Laziness Does Not Exist. And um, we were talking about how how when we step in, uh, my, my little story was I, I used to always report to my husband, Michael, how he was feeling. And I would say, oh, today, you know, you need to do this because you're feeling this or this or this. And um I was really worried about him, very worried about him, and so it escalated. And at some point, we were scheduled to go to Costa Rica for a conference, and I told him, I said, Michael, um, I'll go. You don't have to go, and he seemed very relieved. And as soon as I left and was no longer reporting on his health to him, he got himself to the hospital and he actually almost died because I was reporting, and he, he had this big-time pneumonia. I mean, oh. really big time. When I found out about it and I was flying home, I didn't know if he was dead or alive on that flight home uh, because being in the air and I couldn't get in touch with him. So it was pretty scary. Oh. But there, there is another example of where we take on somebody else and it just it, we it's about boundaries and just understanding this can be life threatening. Even your story was a bit like that. Um, so let's talk about those boundaries and how difficult sometimes it is for us to call them up, especially in relationships and friends and in family, especially. So yeah. please, let's what what is your advice there? Yeah. um, So so kind of like I was starting to hint at, 
the laziness lie in the kind of culture of workaholism, it isn't just about work. It's about there's always more you could be doing and it's always better to do more. And that includes in our relationships. So one place where that's really clear, I think, is the amount of pressure that parents feel to do everything perfectly and to kind of set their kids up for success, set themselves up for, you know, being emotionally competent, giving them skills that'll be competitive, you know, overscheduling them, all of these things. And you know, being criticized no matter what you do, pretty much if you're a parent. Uh, but it, it bleeds into every type of relationship too. So thinking that if a friend has a problem, if we care about them, we need to do something. Um, we need to be active and engaged and put tons of effort into fixing their problem for them. Um, and it's actually really disrespectful when we when we do that. It's taking a person's agency away and thinking that uh, we have the ability to solve it when we almost never do. You know, a person can ask for help and ask for the specific things that they need and we can show up for people. Um, but that's not the same thing as taking control of somebody else's life. You really can't do that. And it's not, it's not good for them if you do. Um, and so there's a few people that I profile in the book who um, have had to really put their foot down with uh, relatives in particular that they've gotten into that pattern with. Um, so someone with a, a very demanding mother who, um, you know, the mother was really invested in seeing herself as a good mom and really needed constant reassurance from her daughter and kind of attention from her daughter and, and learning how to uh, just not pick up the phone every time that mom called and not fall into some of her kind of provocations was a really hard thing um, for the person that I, that I interviewed about that. Um, Because in those cases, not only is it seen as like lazy to kind of leave your loved ones high and dry, it's like, a betrayal, you know, people take it as not being loved sometimes, um, when really advocating for yourself and treating someone else with dignity and really acting like I'm, I'm an individual, you're an individual. When we can kind of come together, that's beautiful, but sometimes it's, sometimes it can't be helped. Sometimes we're not on the same page and I can't rule your life for you. That's actually the more humane thing to do. And I, I think some of your suggestions there are are to um, take like baby steps to say to say no in maybe smaller ways and start start like with that. Are are there other suggestions or maybe you want to elaborate on that suggestion? Sure. Yeah. So one expert that I quote a lot in this section of the book is Kathy Labriola, who's a, a counselor and has been working with clients with these kinds of issues for for many many, many years. And she really suggests, as you said, kind of giving a person uh, kind of a a heads up that the dynamic is going to change and kind of slowly receding. Because uh, if somebody is is getting a lot of your attention and labor, uh, they're going to perceive that loss and it's going to hurt them and and light up some of their abandonment issues or entitlement issues, however you want to kind of uh, cast them. Uh, And so it takes a little bit to kind of reestablish. She talks about how in her own life, she had a really need kind of sister. And it took years, years and years, I think a decade, she said, to kind of reset the dynamic because for decades they'd been kind of codependent. Um, And then the other thing that I think for me was really important in terms of tools is this one chart that she kind of helped me develop where if you have a friend who's struggling, you should ask yourself a series of questions. And kind of one of the first questions is, am I the person who should be helping them right now? Can I even do that? Because uh, a lot of times we just start, if you are that kind of uh, person who compulsively uh, overcommits, like I do, your first gut impulse is, this is my problem, when often it is not your problem. And uh, it, w- it wouldn't be possible for you to fix it. So just kind of resetting those expectations of who is the best person 
for this person to ask. Is it me? Is there anything I can do? Um, maybe I should just ask them what their plan is to kind of make it clear that it's their, it's their situation. And, you know, if they have a specific ask for me, you know, I'm, so I'm not going to say no to helping a friend move if I'm available, but I shouldn't plan out their whole move for them and call their movers, you know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I know one of the the ideas that you have expressed is expressive writing. And and you said in in your own case, I believe I remember you saying that the expressive writing that you did helped your communication with your own mother. Mm-hmm. It, Sure. Yeah. So the expressive writing method is a therapeutic practice where it's really good for getting in touch with emotions that you uh, are kind of trying to ignore or maybe that you don't like that you're having, uh, which I certainly going back to the laziness lie, I feel like I hate any, any emotion that I perceive as weakness. I know that's wrong. So I have to work really hard to unlearn that association. Um, So you just sit aside um, 20 minutes to half an hour to just write uh, totally unbridled about a thing that's causing you um, emotional upheaval. And you just write without editing. No one's ever supposed to see the writing. It's not supposed to be like a beautiful piece of work. It's just supposed to be really messy getting the emotions out. And and that really helped me when I started doing that regularly, identifying a lot of the resentments that I had, these kind of ugly feelings. Um, my mom and I are very different. She's conservative. She doesn't necessarily understand how her politics affect me as a trans person and, and why it really, I can't separate that from her, you know? Um, and she just wants us to kind of act like everything's fine all the time. And I, and I was, I really resent, I was resenting that and I didn't feel okay even saying it. Um, so after a, a long time kind of drilling down into these emotions and letting myself look at them, be really messy on the page. There was finally this moment where I was on the phone with her and she said some kind of, uh, I was planning a visit and she said, well, you better be happy when you're here. And I said, I'm going to be me. <laughs> sometimes I'll be happy. Sometimes I'll have other emotions. You're going to get me. You're not going to get a sanitized version of me. And it felt really good. Like it was not aggressive. It was just kind of resetting. Hey, I have these emotions and it's okay for us to talk about them. And in fact, if our relationship is going to be okay, we have to actually talk about them. Well, speaking of your mother, I believe that she really um, had an extensive work ethic even though she was uh, suffered from some debilitating pain, and she just would just push right through it, so that I can understand that you really got this message early on. Is it, am I seeing that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. My mom has always had uh, really bad scoliosis. She was growing up right at that kind of time where you would get the metal rods in your back, um, and it was like this really painful, debilitating surgery. That one of the rods that's in her back in the past couple of years it broke and you just keep it in in your body apparently like her doctor said just you just live with this um and she's a she was a dental hygienist so that's a lot of time on your feet bent over patients cleaning their teeth and um like long hours just doing this really physically intense work and it kind of just uh snowballed that if you already have that back pain then it kind of becomes a knee problem and doing all of the tooth cleanings it also gives you arthritis in your wrist and she just kept working through um pain and like developing a limp. And one day it just got to the point, it was two years ago now, where she just had to retire by text message because she couldn't 
she couldn't even walk to the garage anymore. Like it, she had been trying to negotiate and ignore her own pain for so long that it just got to the point where she didn't get to kind of deliberately plan out, okay, I'm going to retire and, and I can make this decision freely. It was just, oh my gosh, I can't even get up. I have, I can't work anymore. Um, so yeah, that's what happened to her. So uh, you mentioned like we ignore our body. Uh, there was someone early on in the book that she ended up with um, a totally debilitated gallbladder. I mean, it was just totally gone. Yeah, and she she didn't pay attention at all for for years. Uh, describe her process there. Yeah, uh, Max is one of the examples of overwork I start off the book with because it's so extreme, um, and she's a friend of mine. So I saw some of this stuff happen to her in real time. Um, she uh, was working eighty to ninety hour work weeks very routinely. Um, her job was just, she had a manager who was very demanding and lots of, um, they subcontract with the government. So all these applications that were constantly like being put in at the last minute, everything was constantly an emergency that she had to kind of put out. So she got really used to ignoring her body because she would just be at the desk all day long. Sometimes she would order food and just forget to eat it because she was just at her desk all day long. Um, and so it got to the point where she, uh, her gallbladder uh, burst and started like decaying, um, which I did not know was something that could happen, but apparently it is. And she was crawling on her hands and knees just to get to the bathroom to throw up. And then she went to the emergency room and the doctor told her that it was the most decayed like necrotic gallbladder he had ever seen and that it might have been weeks that she was working with that happening and the really kind of darkly funny or or clarifying moment for her is that when she was hospitalized for this decayed gallbladder this incredibly painful condition she told me it was like the most fun time she had had in like years because she finally got to just lay down and watch TV. Um, so that tells you just how overworked she was that like having this medical emergency was the closest thing to a vacation she had gotten in a long time. Well, there we go. There we go. I mean, we're not paying attention to our bodies when we're in immersed in this laziness lie that our worth is connected with our productivity. And therefore we're just like, ignoring the signals in our body uh, all the time. And you point this out over and over and give examples in your book, how we do this. So part of um, your recommendations, I would say, is um, something about like savoring uh, is one, uh, savoring or, or awe is another. Uh, so uh, we'll talk about this in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. Devin Price, the author of Laziness Does Not Exist. And if you want to know more about the work of Devin Price, you can go to the website, which is devinprice.medium.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Dr. Devin Price, and they are the author of Laziness Does Not Exist. And Devin, there's a quote that you talk about in the book, one that we're all familiar with, and it's attributed to an Irish statesman, Edmund Burke. He says, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Tell us why you pulled up this quote and what is meaningful about it is in relationship to the laziness lie. Yeah, so this quote is really popular. Um, I probably first heard it the first time I took a civ- civics class as like an elementary schooler or something like that, because it feeds into a very individualistic American myth, I think, uh, that um, strong individuals doing things and being active and having agency, that's the solution to all the world's problems. Uh, the quote kind of equates doing something with virtue and not doing something with being immoral, which as I said earlier, not doing something is value neutral. It really depends on the situation whether or not doing something is damaging. Uh, and so it feeds into this nasty dynamic. And I kind of challenge the quote in the book that actually um, what causes evil in the world is people thinking that they're doing good, people being being very active. Uh, Someone who's just doing nothing has never necessarily hurt anyone. Um, And then the other problem with the quote uh, is that uh, the actual original quote by Edmund Burke isn't actually that quote at all. The actual quote is very much about how when uh, people do evil into the world, good people need to band together and support one another. So instead of this very uh, individualistic Uh, go do something, go conquer the world kind of message. It's actually a message about kind of resetting, joining with your community, looking after one another, and not necessarily being super active and kind of militaristic uh, in the way that that quote is often used to kind of like justify military intervention. It's about kind of community support and being there for one another, which can often look a lot more passive, uh, but it's much more sustainable. You talk a little bit about activism in the book, and um, in these days, many of us have been, in the past year, in 2020, been very, very active politically, and done, even sheltering in place have done m- many things, and there's something called activism fatigue. I think we can all really relate to that as well. So let's talk about activism and how how we can avoid activism fatigue, let's say, because we, we all do want to make a difference in the world and do something good and be of benefit. Uh, however, how, what's the balance we have to hold there? Yeah, I think it all comes down to um, expectations. Um, Obviously, it is a good thing to try and uh, put good into the world. But I think a lot of times we mistake being really active, doing a lot of things to go back to the Edmund Burke quote, uh, with, uh, you know, that being our responsibility and that that's always a positive and people can be so desperate to do something that sometimes that energy goes kind of in the wrong place um, in a variety of different ways. Uh, So it can be things that are kind of um, performative, that uh, make you feel really good and like you're doing something, but it isn't necessarily the best use of your energy. Um, Or it can be just saying yes to every single thing that you're asked to do uh, and volunteering for a bunch of causes and just really burning yourself out. 
Um, and this has been a problem in activist communities going back pretty much forever because it always feels so life and death. We always have so much rhetoric about how important the issues are, uh, which is not wrong, but it just really fires up everyone's um, fight or flight instincts and it's just not sustainable. So then you have a lot of people join an activist group like standing up for racial justice, for example, uh, and just really attending every meeting, being really active for a couple of weeks, and then disappearing because they burnt themselves out. So we really need to build sustainable practices that are informed by our, a, commit, a commitment to our values and what really um, what also feels rewarding and worthwhile rather than being um, kind of guilted or guilting ourselves into to doing too many things. Uh, one other thing that I think is really important for doing activism in a way that isn't going to hurt you and burn you out is uh, allowing yourself room for grief and for mourning. Because mm. if you're worried about um, climate change, if you're worried about police brutality and murders of Black people uh, or other issues, you are going to have losses. You are going to have setbacks and disappointments. And there is trauma there that you have witnessed um, that we can't ever undo or take away. So part of dealing with that, I think, um, and one therapist that I talked to, Sochi Sandoval, uh, talks about this in the book, is the power of just mourning the people who have been lost, the damage to the environment, the things that we can't undo, and kind of accepting the reality that we do live in, and then deciding from there, okay, this hurts, what's next? Right. I, I, I believe that the Jewish tradition just really has a good handle on mourning and and really acknowledging grief and they do a whole ritual around it uh, that uh, is is very very powerful uh, it's one of the strengths I think of that tradition and in everyday culture we don't give ourselves the time to grieve there are ways that we, we say, okay, well, get over it, you know, uh, enough already, you know. I mean, we, we put a time limit on people, and everybody's an individual, and that, that need to, to grieve in our society has not been um, supported as well as it should, I think, in my opinion, should be. Absolutely. I think so, too. I think, um, again, going back to those really individualistic messages in culture, we want to be these like heroes who save the day and fix everything. And that's an enormous burden. And sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes it's more about we're moving into a new world. And that doesn't mean that we give up. It doesn't mean that it's hopeless. But it does mean that there are things that we're carrying that are really heavy. And it's not... Um, it's not our job as individuals to save the world. All we can do is take care of our community, the people we love, make kind of careful decisions about what we're what we're putting into the world. But um, none of us is going to be a savior. That's just too much anxiety to to take on. I often say, um, work with what's close to you. Like to say, okay, what can I affect right now? What 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 can I do right now that will contribute to the overall good and and then to release it and not be attached to the outcome i think that's where where we we get so overly attached to the outcome is we think we know exactly how it should come out and that goes that goes to something else that that you talk about and that's um curiosity 
being curious, like being curious, like I wonder how this is going to turn out is like a kind of curiosity uh, rather than saying, oh, it's going to turn out really badly. Well, we don't really know. So say something about curiosity as as an uh, effective way of being in the world. Yeah. Um, so, so one thing that is a really vital form of self-care uh, that is a real burnout kind of prevention agent is having a sense of awe and a sense of wonder about the world. Uh, it helps uh, put things in perspective. This is based on research that's been done on people in really traumatic professions. So social workers, nurses, people who see a lot of intense things um, and can get really burnt out from that kind of work. And what research on kind of managing the mental health of people in those uh, workplaces shows is that Self-care doesn't just mean taking a bubble bath or taking a nap. You also need some kind of spiritual fulfillment, and it doesn't have to actually be religious or metaphysical. It can be something like looking at a beautiful mountain or a sunset or watching someone practice an art form that you know nothing about and being just totally dazzled uh, by the bigness of the world and how there's just so many things that you just don't even know. Uh, that puts our our problems into con in, into a proper context and perspective, and it also just reminds us that there's so many things to look forward to that we just don't even know to look forward to them because the world is so vast, um, and that opens up a lot of room for kind of humility, possibility, and for savoring, which we talked about a little bit earlier, which is just kind of mindfully, slowly appreciating the beauty that's around us rather than just constantly being bombarded with information. Um, yeah. Right. I, I just uh, read, I was, I'm in the middle of um, Valerie Carr. Uh, she's a sick person. Uh, that's her, her religious affiliation. And um, she wrote a book called See No Stranger, a memoir and manifestation to revolutionary love. And, um, She's very much an activist, and there was one quote that I had to write down. She, some, she said something like, "Wonder is a conscious act." So it's like we can be proactive in that, being, as you say, uh, bringing awe into our lives or being curious. It's like being conscious of that or savoring. Mm -hmm. So savoring something is a is a major conscious act, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah. I talked to um, the foremost researcher on the psychology of savoring, Fred Bryant, and he really emphasizes that it's a skill that you practice. It's not something that you either just are born with um, or, or don't have. Um, so if you're going through the motions, if you're caught in a routine, if you're just constantly going and going and going uh, and not um, kind of languishing, languidly enjoying like the positive things in life, a lot of, a lot of pleasure and joy is going to pass you by. But um, if you walk away from that and just slowly absorb everything and really um, peacefully interact with it, then you can slow down time even for yourself. Oh, wonderful. So we're going to have to end with that, that here we are savoring and and stopping time. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I've been speaking with Dr. Devin Price and they are the author of Laziness Does Not Exist. And if you want to know more about the website of Dr. Price, you can go to devonprice.medium.com 
or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3,721. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.